When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Richard, I had a weird experience the other day. I went on YouTube. I was looking for the 9-11 conspiracy movie, Loose Change. Yeah, that's the homemade movie that got a lot of people hooked on conspiracy theories about 15 years ago. Yeah, it's full of lies and crazy claims. But Loose Change was also one of the most popular pieces of user-made content in the history of the Internet. So here's the thing. I couldn't find it very easily on YouTube. They used their algorithm to suppress it. I, I guess they classify it as misinformation. Now, you have a lot of problems with this film, but how did you feel about that, about not being able to find it easily? I'm not sure. I mean, it is misinformation. So part of me is happy that some kid just Googling around, you know, doesn't find it uh, so easily. But on the other hand, I'm not really happy with Google, YouTube's parent company, having the power to decide what information we get to see, what should be hidden, and having that whole process happen in a kind of black box. So should any institution or technology company have that kind of power? And this is our topic today. Can big tech be tamed? With Marin Sahami and Jeremy Weinstein. We can celebrate a world of free expression, but the amplification of harmful content that we have seen so much with Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and others, those reflect deliberate choices built into the design of technologies, built into the bottom line of companies, and enabled by the absence of political leadership. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Remember a couple of decades ago, Richard, we all thought the Internet would give us enormous freedom to find information and communicate ideas. It was the era of digital utopianism. That was true for a while. And to some extent, there's still some truth in that, but we certainly didn't anticipate that most of the communication on the internet would wind up being controlled by just a handful of giant corporations. Our guests today are two Stanford University professors who've lived through that transition from digital utopia to what some call a tech dystopia. Marin Sahami teaches both engineering and education at Stanford University. He is also a former senior research scientist at Google. And Jeremy Weinstein teaches political science at Stanford. He previously worked in the Obama administration in a number of roles involving diplomacy and international development. Together, 
Weinstein and Sahami teach a joint course at Stanford about the intersection of ethics and technology. They are two of the authors of the new book, System Error, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot. Marin and Jeremy join us from Palo Alto, California. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? It's great to be here. So the past 25 years since the early days of the Internet have seen huge changes. Digital technology has transformed nearly every aspect of our lives. How has that relationship changed, Jeremy? If you look back over recent years, we've gone from a perspective on technology that highlighted its liberatory potential, its transformative and beneficial effects on society, to the opposite pole, where everything associated with big tech is bad. We see all of these harms around us, misinformation and disinformation, job loss due to automation, concerns about bias and algorithms. We need to enter a third moment, which is neither this utopian vision of a tech future that's all good or a pessimistic vision of the future where tech is all bad. Central to our argument is that we are agents in this evolving story, that in our current moment, too much of the power and the choice about technology's effects is in the hands of those who are building technology and the companies that oversee them. But that's only because in many ways we have given up the agency that we have to shape tech's future. And one of the central tools that we have for shaping tech's future is our democracy. Mehran, you were an early employee at Google, and one of the projects you worked on was finding a way to filter out spam in our email inboxes. So that's a good thing. Thank you for that. But when did you start becoming aware of problems? When did you start seeing that this era of digital utopianism, which I was certainly a big part of, uh, when did you start seeing some cracks in that? Well, one of the things that you see happening with technology is that the social impacts are more on display now. I think in the early days of building out technology, people were looking at how we could communicate better, what kinds of ways we could find information better. And so having some tools to be able to do that as opposed to nothing was very much welcome. And people were finding new ways to engage with the kind of media that was out there and the information that was available. But what happened over time was two things. One is that some people figured out how to exploit those tools as well, for example, to be able to disseminate misinformation and disinformation to do things like sway people's opinions or to affect elections. And at the same time, companies began to optimize more and more for things like having people spend more time on their platform and click through on things and spend time watching videos, because the more time people spent engaging with those platforms, the more ad revenue they could generate. The tech world has a powerful ethos that whatever leads to explosive growth is good. And you quote a controversial memo at Facebook written a few years ago that said anything that allows us to connect more people more often is de facto good. Jeremy, what's wrong with that approach? So when we think about the kind of ingredients for the situation that we're in today. Like, why are we in a toxic mess where we not only benefit from technology, but we also see all of these social harms? We identify three critical ingredients for this toxic mess. The first is what we call the optimization mindset. And this is the obsession and focus in the training of engineers 
in the discipline of computer science and at the core of tech companies that privileges the optimal pursuit of ends, regardless of what those ends are. And when you think seriously about optimization as an approach to the world, it matters a lot what ends you care about, how well you're measuring those ends, and how you deal with potential things that might be affected negatively by the pursuit of one end over another end. And the Facebook memo is a perfect example of this. What becomes a proxy for connection is time on platform. And when you're optimizing for time on platform, as you might see in the behavior of our kids or our grandkids, uh, what you get is the sucking in of people into a platform, the ability to turn that into monetization and extraordinary profits, but with enormous harmful consequences in various ways. So optimization is the first problem you describe. The second part relates to how new tech companies are financed by investors. The structure of the venture capital industry privileges uh, sort of dominating markets as quickly as possible. That is, you're making a lot of bets in a lot of companies. Most of them are going to fail. But what sustains the industry is the unicorns, the ability to deliver enormous rewards. And in order to achieve that, companies need to take the small products that they're building and quickly dominate the market. And so you're not testing and iterating and trying to figure out what are the behavioral effects and the social effects. You're quickly trying to dominate the market. And that's where effects that might be modest when we see them at first are now imposed on society writ large. And what's the third element? And then you have the deliberate indifference of politicians. And we say deliberate indifference because a decision was made in the 1990s, and it was a bipartisan decision. It's something that's been embraced over multiple decades to create a regulatory oasis around technology, which is to say, we're going to take our hands off of this emerging sector so that it can innovate, so that it can achieve, that it can be a key engine of growth. And it's only now in the last few years that politicians are waking up to the consequences of having enabled that explosive growth without any regulatory guardrails. There, there's a term that economists use, the word is externalities or costs that some businesses impose on everyone else through their activities. Pollution is, of course, the classic example. So when Facebook focuses solely on what they call engagement, they might be creating problems, externalities for other people, maybe that they're not even aware of, a kind of social pollution. Mayron, are you arguing that this is something that even inside the companies we need to be giving more thought to? Absolutely. As companies achieve scale, they take their market power and turn that into political power. Um, one example of that, for example, is Proposition 22 that passed in California that redefined the gig workers who were working for places like Uber and Lyft and DoorDash to be contractors rather than employees. What the state of California tried to do is say, these people should really be employees, they should get benefits, etc. The tech platforms came along and said, no, we actually want to carve them out as contractors. And so what that means are things like the benefits that they would normally get as employees, health care and other kinds of care now become an externality that has to be picked up by the state because it's not being picked up by the companies. 
Large technology firms are mostly dominated by men, very ambitious young men in many cases. Is the lack of gender, age, and even racial diversity in the technology industry the cause of some of the problems that you're concerned about? It's absolutely true. If you look at things like who the funders are, who the venture capitalists are, you see that the number of women and the number of underrepresented groups that are making those funding decisions are exceedingly small. That in turn affects who actually gets funded, which in turn affects what are the products that get built and who are those products built for. So it's an ecosystem that has been reinforcing itself for some time. If we want to have solutions for everyone, everyone has to play a role because that diversity of opinions is really critical. You both teach a course to several hundred undergraduate students at Stanford University on the future of technology. What are those students telling you about their views of ethics? Um, I remember when we started teaching this class three years ago, me as the social scientist coming into the room, you know, engaging this big audience. And one of the questions that I asked to the crowd was, who is technology built for? Whose problems are we solving with technology? And an earnest student uh, raises their hand and they say, well, technology is built for human beings. And I say, every human being? Every human being, right? As if there is no difference across people in terms of their needs, their race, their class, their identity, where they live in the world. So then I pushed further and I said, when we think about the difference between the private interest and the public interest, how would you define the public interest? And another student says, well, I'm a member of the public, so what's in my interest is the public interest. And I think these two examples just underscore the challenges that we confront with the mindset in Silicon Valley a failure to recognize that right now the problems that are being solved, right, the surplus of apps that are designed to get you food in your office via a driver, these are the kinds of apps that are being built, the technologies that are being created that serve the needs of, you know, an upper middle class, upper class sort of society that wants food at low cost and as quickly as they can delivered to their door without having to go out. Um, whereas, the kind of significant challenges that are confronted by lower wage individuals, by marginalized communities in the United States and around the world, those by and large aren't the problems that the tech industry is focused on solving. In fact, they're making those things worse in a lot of cases. I'm just so struck by this, this emphasis on disruption. Every tech conference I've ever gone to, people are celebrating disruption. And half of these companies are trying to disrupt like your little local pizza guy who's making $2 on a pie. It's like, well, we can squeeze some money out of that. Is frustration with that kind of mindset part of what, what drove you guys to, to look deeper into the ethics of this business, of this industry? I think that's part of the optimization mindset, right, is this notion that there are these places where there are still small amounts of profit to be eked out. And the part of the problem with that is if you think about those small amounts of, of profit that are right now distributed, say, across a lot of different businesses, if a platform can centralize and be able to now absorb all those profits, they're drawing those funds away from a lot of different sort of local shops, right? And you can see, for example, Amazon is one global example of that, where there's a lot of local retailers that actually have trouble competing against someone who's operating at scale and can optimize across multiple facets, and then in turn be able to use that data to figure out what are the next things they can optimize. 
Another example is YouTube and how it often drives people down a rabbit hole. You know, after a while, you could well be directed to much more extreme videos. Is that a concern as well? It's absolutely a concern. And, and again, it comes back to the question of what are companies optimizing for? And is what they're optimizing for consistent with our broader notions of what's good for society? We're absolutely in an extraordinary new world where the gatekeepers with respect to content no longer stand in the way of people being able to express their voice, right? So self-generated content is the moment that we're in. But when that self-generated content, when that free expression is pushed to the point that there is so much speech and you can't figure out what's true or false, and a set of companies with corporate incentives to keep you on the platform are pushing you down rabbit holes, offering you clickbait, the content that's most explosive, generate a reaction, pull you in, then we have consequences for the health of our democracy. I think the much bigger question is what can you do about it? And, and I think a, a central argument of the book is that we don't have to be in this position. There's nothing preordained. You can have platforms that allow for self-generated content. We can celebrate a world of free expression. But the amplification of harmful content that we have seen so much with Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and others, those reflect deliberate choices built into the design of technologies, built into the bottom line of companies, and enabled by the absence of political leadership. Speaking of what can we do about it, this is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We're talking today with Marin Sahami and Jeremy Weinstein of Stanford, authors of the new book, System Error, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot. Their third author on the book, Bob Reich, is a philosophy professor at Stanford. Bob Reich wasn't able to be part of this discussion. Now we resume our interview with Merrim and Jeremy. Let's drill down a little bit more on a couple of these problems. Another trade-off is privacy. You write that private companies surveil us in ways that governments never even contemplated and profit handsomely in the process. What are some of the ways, Mehran? So most people would like you to believe that your only choice is actually whether to use a product or not use a product. That's not the real solution. The real solution is we need something systematically rather than just changing individual behavior. We need a change in the system. And a way to describe that is to kind of think about the roadway system, right? We don't just have everyone get a car and say, well, go out and drive safely or your choice is not to drive. 
What we do is we have regulations that create guardrails that make driving safer for everyone. We have lanes, we have stoplights, we have speed bumps. And so what that does, it creates a system of safety. And now within that system, you still have a choice whether to drive or not. And you still have a choice as to how safely you want to drive, but everyone is safer because we have those guardrails in place. That's the same kind of place we need to get to with technology is regulation that provides those guardrails around personal privacy. And then you can still make the choices you want as an individual. One big issue that we haven't talked about yet is facial recognition. Who owns your face? We're at a moment where, you know, we live in a society with digital imagery being captured at every moment. Um, any expectations that people had um, that, that their physical likeness was something that they could determine when and how it would be used are being challenged in this current moment. So maybe you have a set of protections with respect to your driver's license photo, but even that, right, is, is something that is increasingly under debate. But when you're out on the street and there are, you know, closed circuit cameras that are recording your moves by individual companies or individual organizations, there's an ability to aggregate data across all of these sources. And that ability to aggregate data could be used for good where cities, for example, are thinking about how do you basically have 24-hour surveillance from the sky that's connected to cameras on the ground so when you know where a crime happened, you can follow all of the individuals that were associated with that area, track them back in time to where they came from. We care about safety. We care about the prevention of terrorism. We care about protecting people from crime and holding people accountable. The question is at what cost? Right. And, and where do we kind of strike that balance? And the argument of the book is that that balance shouldn't be struck by private companies on their own deciding who to sell these technologies to. But those decisions and that balance needs to be struck through a democratic and deliberative process. Speaking of collective decision making, the European Union has typically been a little ahead of the U.S. and being willing to step in and, and regulate the tech industry. And the EU has a law called the General Data Protection and Regulation, GDPR, that touches on a lot of the issues we've been talking about. Maron, how does it work? The idea behind GDPR starts from a place of saying that individuals have control over their own data. So they need to have transparency as to what kind of data is being collected about them, how that data is going to be used, and if or how or when it will be discarded. It also gives them ownership over their data. So they can do things like say, I want my data deleted. I want to revoke certain rights around that data. I don't want my data used for certain activity. The United States takes a different stance on this. They have a framework called notice and choice or notice and consent. And the idea is they provide you, they, they being the platform, provides you with terms of service for how they're going to use your data. And your choice is do you either accept it sort of whole hog or do you not accept it and not use the platform? And most people don't read the terms of service, right? They just click OK and move on with their day because they don't want to read 60 pages of legalese. But if someone actually takes the time to do it, you'll realize you're giving away a lot of rights over your data. And so that's one of the things we discuss is should the United States take more of a stance more in line with the general uh, the, with GDPR in the EU? And our, our stance is that they should. Why should the United States change its uh, its regulations on this? So. Right now, there's an incredible asymmetry 
you know, the power is in the hands of the tech companies. And when we think about our personal data with respect to health or education, or even national security, the federal government operates under enormous constraints. That is, we're treated as if the data that we provide when we go to the doctor or when we send our kids to school or what happens on our telephone at home, we own that data, okay? But when it comes to private companies, we flip the situation, right? That, that this notice and consent framework is one that really puts disproportionate power in the hands of companies to decide not only how they use the data internally, but also who they provide it to. A lot of this comes down to power. And we've talked a little bit about the political power that these companies have in our system, but they also have a kind of power that big companies in the past didn't have, which is to help shape our reality. If, if a major tech platform or if all of them together decide that there's a certain uh, story that doesn't support their interests, really they can more or less make it disappear. They can push certain stories down, push certain other stories up uh, in, with, with these algorithms that are not, not transparent. This is, to me, maybe the most alarming part of the, the, the power because they could shape our ideas without us even knowing that they've done it. And yet the notion of having the government step in and saying, we want oversight over what information you pass along in your platform. This is a really tricky one. Where do you come down on it? Well, part of the dynamic for the information we actually see online has to do not only with the algorithms, but our own behavior and how that creates data that feeds into the algorithms. People tend to engage with the things that reinforce their own viewpoints. So what happens over time is if you're just trying to maximize for that kind of engagement or that kind of click through, the network begins to break up where people end up in their own silos of information where we're in a bubble that's just filtered in terms of the information we want to see. So part of understanding how to break that cycle is thinking about what are the guardrails you put in place to prevent the kind of over-optimization for these sorts of effects. You know, Facebook's found itself as well that the kinds of content people engage with is the most titillating or the most outrageous content. And no matter where they draw the line on content moderation, the things that people are most likely to engage with are the things closest to the border of that line. So Jim, let me let me add one thing that, that responds to your question about, about sort of what we do about the platforms and their power over information. And maybe the most important thing to say is that, you know, where we were, which was some sort of passive acceptance of these decisions being made by a small number of individuals behind closed doors in a corporate boardroom is over, right? People are aware of that dynamic, that it's Jack Dorsey at Twitter or Mark Zuckerberg um, at Facebook who are the governors of free speech in the digital age, and people have rejected that. And Facebook has, has offered an alternative to that path, which is to say, Let's establish something that we call the Facebook Oversight Board. It's in essence a Supreme Court of outside individuals, of independent voices who will, who will observe and then offer a view on Facebook's choices with respect to content moderation. So for example, the deplatforming of Donald Trump. What you should interpret the Oversight Board as is an effort to secure legitimacy for corporate decision-making over what is allowed and what isn't allowed on the platform. It's an experiment. And what we're gonna get over the next five to 10 years is more experiments. Experiments that range from company-driven efforts to bring greater transparency into content moderation, but we're also gonna get experiments that come from the legislative side. 
either from the federal executive branch or from state legislatures. There's no single answer. There's no silver bullet solution to this dilemma that you're describing. But what there is going to be is a push and pull between companies that continue to exercise extraordinary power, politicians, and then a citizenry that's deeply concerned by the impacts that we're seeing these platforms having all around us. I don't have a lot of confidence in those boards. I mean, if you bring in a mainstream group, I don't have confidence in the free-for-all, but I also don't have confidence in these supposed representatives of of mainstream, moderate, middle-of-the-road view because I don't feel there are that many of them left. How do we deal with that? Where do we find the people who will watch the watchers? It's a great question, Jim. Um, you know, we're at a moment of paralysis in our politics and polarization in American society more broadly. And so issues about the regulation of speech trigger all sorts of concerns. And even those institutions that we thought about in the past as safeguards of science or safeguards of truth no longer have the confidence writ large um, in society as you're describing. Here's the way that I look at at the problem, Jim, and it it won't satisfy you, but it's the best that I can do given this really naughty problem that you're describing. We have a technology that we have developed to help us navigate the really expansive and extensive disagreements that we have in society. And that technology is democracy. And we have adopted that technology, which enables us to surface competing viewpoints, to strive for consensus around evident harms that people might agree to, and to disagree where we disagree and allow the distribution of power in our different levels of government to to make decisions and be checked by other institutions. The alternative to relying on that system is to leave power in the hands of a small number of individuals who are optimizing for something that is evidently beneficial for themselves and harmful for a set of social ends that we care about. You both work with some of the brightest students entering the tech field, people who will be running the next wave of startups. Are are you seeing any changes? Are they starting to ask different sorts of questions, the right sorts of questions? Absolutely. We're seeing a transformation unfolding. And this is one of the reasons that book, we come out, I think, pretty optimistic, given the moment that we're in with respect to this backlash against tech. Um, these, this next generation of students look out at Silicon Valley, and while they see, on the one hand, extraordinary opportunities for wealth creation and to be a part of private companies that are changing the world, they also see all of these harmful consequences that are unfolding. And so the kind of tech utopianism of a decade ago is no longer in evidence among our students. And the reason that this is so important is is that companies ultimately are in a race for top talent. Um, And you have five universities in the United States that train more than 50% of the engineers in Silicon Valley. Stanford is one of them. And so the extent to which young technologists are looking at Facebook and Google and Amazon with a new lens, one that demonstrates their concern with the well-being of gig workers or the impact of of automation on on marginalized groups in the country, that's going to change the game for these companies if they want to be able to recruit people going in. Well, do you see your students as more concerned about moral and ethical questions than they were, say, five or 10 years ago? I think that's certainly true. So working at Stanford, which is kind of the ground zero, the birthplace of Silicon Valley, we feel an especial responsibility in terms of training the students that we're putting out into Silicon Valley to think realistically about the harms. And that's resonated with them so we can really chart a better path forward. 
Thank you, Mehran Sahami and Jeremy Weinstein. Thanks so much for having us. That was, thanks that was great, you yeah, guys. Thanks. That was just so spot yeah. on and very focused. And I don't think there's much more important in our society right now than these questions. I, I'm delighted you're somewhat optimistic. You know, there's no way to sustain yourself without having some inbuilt optimism. Um, but I really do think a dynamic is unfolding out here that's maybe not as visible everywhere else in, in the country. We see it not only with our undergraduates, but also we, we work with professional engineers in the evening and they flock to discussions on these issues. They're concerned about what's happening in their companies. They're concerned about the effects that the technologies that they're creating are having. You see walkouts at Google about their cooperation with the Department of Defense. You see Microsoft refusing to sell facial recognition technologies to police departments You know, in the aftermath of George Floyd. You see people mobilizing around the plight of gig workers and, and pushing back against sexual harassment NDAs. Like it's a moment of social mobilization. Jeremy Weinstein and Marin Sahami. Next up, our recommendation. Jim, is it a video? Is it a movie? Is it a book? Well, Richard, you already know what it is because I told you earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and as usual, it's so hard to get ahead of you. I think I've found the most cool kind of edgy uh, thing. And of course, you've already seen it, read it, heard it. And that's the case today. My recommendation is the Chinese science fiction novel, The Three-Body Problem by Chinese author Lui Zhijin. I believe that's something close to how you might pronounce his name. It was first published in as a book in 2008. This story about the reaching the boundaries of human knowledge and the possibility of interacting with some form of alien intelligence has been a real sensation in the sci-fi world. It's set begins in the Cultural Revolution in China and then deals with some of the aftermath of that wrenching period of change in Chinese society. I also just found out it is coming eventually as a Netflix series, which sounds really good. And now, after Jim's out-of-this-world recommendation, our conversation. So, Richard, you'll probably be surprised to find out that this is a topic I have strong feelings about, but I don't have really strong opinions about. You know, I wish we could just flip a switch and solve this problem. I think it's a really serious one, but I, I don't have an easy solution. But there is not one set of policies that I feel we could just enact and be done with this problem. I agree. I don't think there's one set of policies that we can we can simply enact and that it is a very complicated, difficult, and fluid problem. So we don't want to lock ourselves in to, say, a major piece of legislation that is difficult then to alter uh, if we find that we don't really like exactly uh, what's been passed. Uh, however, I do think that the companies have too much power right now. And so there needs to be some kind of regulatory approach, but it needs to be done in a, in a humble way, in a smart way, um, and, and not kind of a, a heavy-handed, uh, rigid way. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, humble regulations, there just is no such thing. Uh, you know, you start well, you start giving regulators power and, and they take it and and industries learn how to work the regulators to their advantage. It so often happens that we try to regulate big companies and what winds up happening is we enhance their power, but we make it harder to enter that industry for smaller players. Exactly the opposite of what we want here. That that's difficult, but we do need regulations for some things. We have regulations on clean clean air and clean water and and clean food. And I would hope we can come up with some kind of regulations for tech. Uh, it's just going to be a difficult job, but I don't think that we should abandon all hope. So this is a really thorny problem. Here's where I think we agree. Anything that gives people more control over their own data is a positive. And I think there are ways that regulations can help with that. We discussed some of that in the episode. And anything that that makes it harder for these companies to constantly acquire more power, for example, the by having all their acquisitions of potential competitors and other companies just rubber stamped by the regulators, I think we could be much more skeptical about about that. And there may be other tweaks we can make to the to some of the underlying way the internet works. For example, is it really fair that once you use Google, you know, they can track you to every other website that you then go to? Should they be allowed to do that? Are there some restrictions on that? It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. This show is a production of Davies Content. We're podcast consultants and podcast producers. Find out more at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 